I'm one of your hosts, Grizzly Abner, and I'm joined by Professor Wagstaff, Venomous Vinny, Hot Toddy. Good to be with you again, friends, as we delve into another episode of True Crime. Uh, you know what we do? We find a film, because some of these have multiple films, and we don't have time for that. So we just pick a film about a particular case. Would you say, ain't nobody got time for that? Ain't nobody got time for that. <laughs> and... Uh, and so tonight we are, and then we yeah we, we we look at the real case first, and then we talk about the film. So please join us as we, Vinny, you jam me up there. Uh, <laughs> let's take a look at the onion field. Yes, n- none of us are are functioning right now, which is good to tackle the serious stuff first. With no, I'm just kidding. Uh, were we familiar with this case and movie before? So. I've obviously heard of it. It's uh, when you talk about true crime writing, it's it's canon for like the OGs. So it's like in cold blood, onion field. Then you know it's like it's it's the golden era. Sure. Yeah. But never seen the movie till now. I have never heard of the movie, and I had never heard of the case. I am an enormous Ted Danson fan, and I collect all of his memorabilia. Uh, <laughs> that's not true. Is that uh, all your autographed bagpipes are? Yes. That's why you gave me so much shit for watching Three Men and a Baby. <laughs> so, uh, uh, in reality, I had never heard of this movie or the book. Gotcha. Yeah, this is one that I was familiar with because of my dad. Um, he knew the book well, and the movie for that matter. It was one of the ones he sent me in college. Um, so it was one that, that I was... Uh, pretty close to already uh, but it's an excellent point you make it's much like in cold blood that even more so that whole the whole genre of true crime has grown so much since this book came out yeah but now the, it's the so important writing right, right. like because a, it's funny because historically when you look back people have always been into crime sure like people have been into true crime from pulp novels to dime novels to right. all this sort of stuff to even touring like dead criminals around the country so you can look at their body like yeah but true crime writing exactly yeah where where a certain level of respect was brought to it yeah. um and so for instance wambaugh or Wamball, as some people pronounce it uh was um a cop in la at the time of when this happened and so he also was bringing experience to the novel as a, you know somebody from law enforcement as well okay so Around 10 p.m. on the night of March 9th, 1963, LAPD officers Ian Campbell, age 31, and Carl Hedinger, age 28, were riding in an unmarked police car. They pulled over a 46 Ford Coupe containing two suspicious-looking men at the corner of Carlos Avenue and Gower Street in Hollywood for making an illegal U-turn and having a broken license plate light. The two men, Gregory Powell, 
age 30, and Jimmy Lee Smith, a.k.a. Jimmy Youngblood, age 32, had recently committed a string of robberies and were each armed. Uh, Powell, the driver, pulled a gun on Campbell, uh, who calmly told his partner, he has a gun in my back, give him your gun. And so all of this transpired within like 30 seconds of them coming up to the car and pulling them over. Um, But the partner did as he requested, surrendered the gun, and the two officers were then forced into Powell's car and quickly driven north from Los Angeles on Route 99 to an onion field near Bakersfield. Once they arrived at the onion field, Powell asked Campbell if he had heard of the Little Lindbergh Law. When Campbell replied yes, Powell shot him in the mouth. Mm. After Campbell fell to the ground, he was shot four more times. It is unclear who fired the four remaining shots. Powell always said that the four other bullets were fired by Smith, who denied it. Hedinger managed to escape and uh, went on the run from them out in the fields there. Um, and four miles later at a farmhouse, he called for help, got the assistance, and, and he escaped. Powell and Smith split up. Powell stole a 57 Plymouth and attempted to drive back to L.A. Smith headed to Bakersfield. Powell was then apprehended a couple hours later. Smith was arrested the next day at a rooming house in Bakersfield. At the time of his arrest, Smith was unarmed and washing his clothes in the communal bathroom. Uh, this killing occurred primarily because Powell assumed that the kidnapping of the officers alone already constituted a capital crime under the state's Little Lindbergh's Law. However, Powell's interpretation is incorrect. Surprise, surprise. Uh, under the Little Lindbergh Law at the time, kidnapping became a capital crime only if the victim were harmed or if a ransom were demanded. Now, today, kidnapping in California is punishable by life imprisonment, either with or without the possibility of parole, depending on the circumstances. So the true tragedy here was over an idiot not understanding the law that he was breaking or not. So that that's even the worst part of it is it wasn't even out of necessity. I mean, it was wrong no matter what, but to add insult to injury... Guy didn't even know what he was talking about. And here's the thing, and not to downplay anybody's life <clears throat> that was lost, but as you read that out, this does not sound like some like extremely intriguing crime. Mm-hmm. It Good comes luck. off very petty. Uh, only, honestly, the time period to me is what makes it stand out to me, and obviously because it involves an officer's death, but all in all... For this to have become what it is, and we're covering it compared to other things that we've covered and movies have been about, this seems rather tame in comparison. Mm-hmm. And that's a good point for listeners. So, and I'll contextualize kind of what the fascination with the case was as it grew. Any other thoughts on the initial? Yeah, I, killed by an idiot who thought he was a mastermind. Yeah, you know what I mean. And that's, nothing worse than an idiot that thinks there's a genius. Yeah, and that I mean that jives with so many. I mean, it jives within cold blood. Yep. Right. I mean these 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 backwards crooks who just think that they've got it all figured out. You know. Yeah. And yeah. There's that. But my question is, um, Vinny, is it hard for you to hear about Bakersfield and not start singing Dwight Yoakam? <laughs> Every time I hear Bakersfield, all I think of is Dwight Yoakam. <laughs> Toddy, any initial thoughts on the crime? No, I was just still dreaming about onions. Um, <laughs> I, I, I will say, again, I, I don't know a lot about the case, but just, uh, just the movie was 79. I would say, like, even even 70s, like these kind of movies, I thought the... Uh, I kind of went into the movie blindly on purpose since I didn't know anything about it, so... Um, I did the same. I really didn't know what... Um, 
I think the only thing I knew going in was something about a kidnapping. <clears throat> um, so it kind of shocked me in the film, and I'm sure the film's not um, 100%, but just to, um, I, I don't think I was expecting him to kill the officer the way he did. <clears throat> sure. Um, okay, so yeah. to contextualize what we're talking about here and why this, because you're right, there are a lot of cases like this, uh, but the big difference is is the book that came out and how detailed it was written in a way that wasn't available to true crime fans as much. This was a big deal, like In Cold Blood. Now, In Cold Blood's still more intimate because that author became friends with the killers versus somebody just who was a cop and did their research. He's more distanced from the case than Capote was with that one. Uh, do you mean friends with the killers or kind of infatuated with the killers when you talk about Truman Capote? The latter. <laughs> um, so, but what's also interesting with this is what you have going on in the world as things unfold with these criminals. Because, so by the time you get to the 70s, you have the popularity of movies like Death Wish, the Dirty Harry movies, where things have really shifted to rights being more focused on defending the potential criminal at the beginning mm -hmm. than they were the victim. And people got fed up with it. And so this case became kind of one of those iconic faces of that. Because these guys kept getting break after break after break. They're murderers. And this is right around the time of the Miranda Law coming exactly. into effect, right? Yep, which helped fuel that. And then as you as we have a fact their case, the death penalty stuff in the 70s mm -hmm. and all kinds of other things, more minute that we won't get into because it would be long and boring, but lots of little things adding up to where it, just, it seemed like it was pro-criminal. Now, it wasn't. A lot of it was driven by trying to balance and be fair with justice, but a lot of it went too far mm -hmm. and, and muddied the waters, especially in public perception of what was going on. So it's like, you know, Miranda rights was a huge one. It's like, so, you know, this person did this heinous crime, but because you didn't say the right thing at the time of arresting them, we throw all that out. Yeah. That's insane. But that's, you know, it was designed to be pro justice. Whereas perception it was really pro-criminal so, uh, to people. So Freddie got out. <laughs> yes. Okay, so... Todd, Todd, do you know your Miranda rights? I do. <laughs> so with this, I'll uh, just kind of go through, because uh, we had four main characters, and obviously the one was killed at the beginning, but I'm just going to kind of go through what happened to the remaining three after that kind of illustrate what we're talking about here. Um, and also, when we get to the movie, what makes it so interesting in a way that you won't get with a lot of crime movies where the movie is all about after the crime and how it affected the people as opposed to the crime and solving it. Uh, so for Officer Carl Hedinger, um, according to Pierce Brooks, the officer who investigated the crime, Hedinger Suffragan, suffered from survivor's guilt because of Campbell's death, describing it as a tremendous guilt complex. In addition, uh, Hedinger was forced to visit squad rooms and publicly admit blame for his lack of courage at the Onion Field. Um, it was is a shameful element of this because basically the LAPD immediately moved to, to put things on the record uh, for rules that if you surrendered your gun, you're in deep shit from there on out implying, uh, you know, cause they called it the Hedinger memorandum. And so you basically put all of this on one guy. It's horrible. I mean, he'd already been through this, um, in a way for something that they hadn't really been trained on and addressed. 
And that was a, I thought, you know, I think most people look back on it and be like, you could have handled that better. Yeah. It should have been moving forward and not attached his name all <laughs> over it. Right. Um, I feel like it could have went the other way, and he didn't give up his gun, and then they shot him, and then I feel like he would have been in right. shit over that, and, too. And I know we're not talking about the movie much, but there's a great scene with the officer standing up for him in a meeting when it's being addressed, saying, no, you can't do this to officers who do what they think they need to do in the moment. It's so easy to armchair quarterback. Right. Yeah. Um, and so that's a really interesting element and a, a really tragic one that helped fuel so much of, of his misery after the fact. Um, depressed and finding it difficult to function, Hedinger was transferred uh, to a less stressful job as a driver for the police chief, uh, but he began shoplifting um, and was forced to resign from the police department there, uh, which mo- most people attribute as him looking to be punished mm. because he wasn't really being punished for that. And it's just kind of looking for the relief of finality. Um, in 85, 1985, Hedinger spoke for the first time about the incident. He said, I still get uneasy. I still can't sleep very well, and I can still see their faces. I want to stop him, pal, from getting back on the street. I know this man. Hedinger died on May 4th, 1994, at a hospital in Bakersfield. He was only 59 years old, and the cause of death was liver failure. Um, throughout which they portray in the movie, he, he drank heavily to self-medicate. Um, our two criminals, Jimmy Smith, on September 4, 1963, Smith was convicted of first-degree murder. He was originally sentenced to death, but the sentence was reduced to life in prison in the, 1970, in the 1970s when the California Supreme Court outlawed the death penalty, which we have covered before in the Manson family crimes. Uh, in 1982, Smith was officially paroled despite public outrage. Nevertheless, Smith spent the last 25 years of his life in and out of prison, Four months after his 82 parole, he failed a drug test and was returned to prison. After serving six months, he was paroled again, only to be rearrested in Long Beach on drug charges. He later pleaded guilty to two counts of selling heroin and was sentenced to five years in prison. He released in 86, then arrested in Burbank in 1987, convicted of driving while under the influence of a narcotic. In 89, on parole again, he was arrested for terrorizing a woman he held captive over a weekend in West Covina in 1998. Yet again on parole, he was arrested in Van Nuys for threatening a man with a knife and finally died on April 6, 2007 at the age of 76, where he was being held for failing to report to a parole officer the cause of death was a heart attack. So if there's any uh, questioning on if the cops just hunted this guy because he got paroled, no. He was a criminal. He was a scumbag. And there's a whole host of ways that he managed to end up back in jail. Um... And lastly, Gregory Powell uh, was arrested a few hours later after the incident uh, by a CHP officer after attempting to escape uh, via a stolen car. Um, although Powell was armed at the time of his arrest, he showed no resistance. In July of 67, Powell was granted a second trial. Once again, he was convicted and sentenced to death. Later that year, he unsuccessfully attempted to escape from San Quentin Prison. With three other inmates in 68, he had attempted to smuggle guns into the Los Angeles County Jail, and in 69, he attempted to escape its recreation room. Recreation room, sorry. Uh, By 72, his sentence was commuted to life in prison when the state of California, same thing. Uh, He was originally scheduled for parole in June of 1982. A petition submitted by the group Citizens for Truth and Justice garnered 31,500 signatures protesting against parole, which led to the reset, uh, removing of his parole date. Uh, the group was assisted in its effort by Powell's victim's daughters, uh, Valerie Campbell. Um, he was able to obtain an order of release 
uh, from Solano County Superior Court Judge Ellis Randall. Uh, but again, Citizens for Truth just put a stop to that. The repeated cycle of appeals and denials frequently with public pressure continued over the years. In 2011, he had also been denied compassionate release despite a diagnosis of terminal prostate cancer. And on August 12, 2012, he died of prostate cancer. And uh, he was 79 years old. His death occurred two days after a Hollywood intersection was dedicated in Officer Ian Campbell's name where the original crime took place. And lastly, Joseph Wambaugh offered the Onion Field interviewed Powell why he was in prison. According to Wambaugh, Powell had only one complaint about the book, that he thought he was more physically attractive than I portrayed him to be. <laughs> Wambaugh also confirmed that one of Powell's lawyers claimed Powell would have been released from prison had it not been for the book or its film adaptation. Thanks for the book. <laughs> that is your full roundup on the case. Oh, boy. <laughs> what do you boys think? Yep, that all happened. <laughs> you, you see what I'm saying, though? Why the, there was a popularity with the uh, kind of like addiction to rage watching so much of this unfold uh, with, with the charade getting to, to carry on. Yeah. These, oh, yeah. These two deadbeats. At that point, it was the longest case in California history, right? Longest trial? Yeah, I'd, although, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I, Ramirez ended up being the longest, then OJ. Yeah. 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 And then I heard a joke that The Onion Field was a book, was the longest book written about the longest trial. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big book. It's like a 400 page book, isn't it? It's massive. Or it depends on the release, obviously, but like, yeah. Yeah, because I was even going to try and squeeze in the audio book. That's like 20 hours. <laughs> Any thoughts on the case? It's all right. It's a lot to digest, but we can jump into the movie if not. I did. Uh, I did after, especially since I wasn't familiar with it. I kind of looked some stuff up because I'd seen. Um, I guess because even even the movie wasn't on my radar, so I kind of looked up some facts about the movie, but uh, and then the true crime. But I had read about the daughter, um, her petition, because uh, I don't think it was just the petition, but how close he was to being released. Um, but I don't know. I looked into that, and um, good times, good times. Yeah, I just echo kind of what the point Todd and Vinny made of like when you watch the film, especially if you go into it blind. Uh, it's so again not to downplay the death. It's so uneventful compared to what it became. Sure, the death. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's like. But that, yeah, well, yeah, I'm saving it for the movie. <laughs> that part. But yeah, yeah. That, that, that's most of where my commentary is going to come yeah. from is the movie. But still the idea, one guy shot, one guy gets away, goes on to become one of the greatest true crime novels of all time. Sure. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting and it goes completely against type for what we do on these episodes because there's, there's no legendary thing about the case because it was committed by morons that was literally put to bed by the next evening, like by dinner time. The next time, they're they're arrested. We're done. Yeah, there was no crack in a case. Yeah, I mean, there was no premeditation. They pulled them over. Thirty seconds later, they're on their way to do it. I, I think the biggest Maybe. thing with this with this case is um, is the other cop because that's something that's not normally. Um, oh yeah. And normally, you either just don't hear about it anymore, or you know. I feel like it's kind of fucked up because I feel like now he would be praised. And instead, like, I mean, you know, it's not like he just abandoned his partner or anything. Um, you know, had he not done any differently, they both would be dead. Um, 
but instead he had to get so much grief. And then, um, again, it kind of gives like, um, you know, it just doesn't stop after, after even the trial, like you see, um, in the movie, you, you know, and I'm, I'm guessing the book is similar that maybe it goes more in, in depth with, with him, but, um, just the weird stuff like, like the shoplifting and, um, I kind of thought he, uh, in the movie, I thought he beat his kid and uh, I, I wasn't yeah. sure. No, no, disturbing. he hit a baby. He didn't abuse okay, his kid. Well, Thank you me. don't hit a baby. <laughs> a baby in a crib. That was, uh, for the movie. uh and again, I, I know it's from the movie, but, um, normally true crime stuff, I don't get uncomfortable with like the AKA hero of the movie. Uh, that, that whole scene was very uncomfortable with, um, with him and his children. Um, you know, normally you're uncomfortable because the killers get back out or, um, but again, I think that's something, a big part of it is it's kind of like, um, it's an angle you typically don't see. Mm -hmm. Um, even in, even in Hollywood movies, it's, it's usually about, you know, the case and then the killers and, and sometimes the victims, but, but usually not like, uh, like, you know, I, I, I think too, like, um, I almost feel like Hollywood now would be like, well, we don't want to make that movie because he's not really like a hero. Um, so then maybe that's the reason that you don't normally hear stuff about this. But Yeah, it's, it's different too because retroactively it's, we look back on it with a much softer lens. Uh, but the reality is, is it, it, it kind of mirrors uh, in a lot of ways uh, the way we treat vets in this country. Um, the fact that th- this guy was put through that and instead of taking care of him long term, um, we instead blame him yeah. and, and and let him own that. And now you can go to Los Angeles now and see you know signs for the highway named after Ian Campbell, and we've and we've got um, which I've noticed before riding around there, and they've they've named the intersection on it. That's nice, but at the time we blamed the one that lived, um, and. I think that's why this story's most important. It's easy to get swept up and think of it just as uh, kind of showcasing how ridiculous uh, the treatment of the criminals were long term. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But to me, the real story is is Carl. Yeah. And what he went through, and how none of that was appreciated at the time. Yeah, and I mean to think about survivor's guilt is a terrible thing to deal with when you are not being ostracized for what you've done. Right. And then to add that to it. Terrific. And uh, for people who don't know the background, the LAPD didn't have the best reputation in the 40s and 50s. What? It's uh, insanely crooked. Well, thank um, God it got better by the 90s. Right. Well, and so, but then you look at, yeah. So you look at, but I mean, they were crooked, crooked, like dirty doings back then. And so you've got a couple guys in the early 60s, a couple of pure officers, one who's killed, and you literally treat one of the good guys like that, yeah. you know, it, it was just, it was dirty. So if nothing else, I, I'm glad that this book and movie exist to really kind of preserve his story. Cause that man was put through hell yeah. it, it, it completely ruined his life. Yeah. Movie time. Movie time. Toddy, you got any dates and details on the movie film? <clears throat> so the movie, the onion filled 1979, Directed by Harold Becker. Um, so, uh, Joseph Wambaugh. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yep. Uh, also based on his book. Uh, starring John Savage as Carl. James Woods as uh, Gregory Powell. Franklin Seals as Jimmy Smith. 
Ted Danson, and I believe in his first movie. First movie. First movie. Uh, as Ian Campbell, and then also Ronnie Cox and uh, Blinkin' You Miss It, Christopher Lloyd. Ah, uh, yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember that. So what's the <laughs> synopsis of this film, Todd? I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> what's this movie about? <laughs> Uh, the, the the movie basically mirrors chronologically the the events as they unfolded as we talked about. Yeah, I, I just want to say that I love how well James Woods played this role. Oh yeah, because I hated him. Yeah, he's, and he's good at that. Yeah, and when you hate, yeah, in more ways than one. But when you really when when a, when an actor can make you hate them, they're doing their job. Yeah. And so just, true. Yeah, I mean, just from the way. I mean, he's slick. He's slimy. He uh, dumb. Yeah, right. Yeah, he overconfident and dumb. Yes, but yes. also with a kind of insecure machismo, and but even more so, this charisma that only like five actors in existence could pull off, and he's one of them. Yeah, like it takes a special kind of balance to make you. Glued to him and hate him at the same time the way that he does. Oh yeah, he he's honestly what makes the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's definite for me. The thing I like to do in situations like this where I haven't seen the movie before is uh, or heard anything about the case is I like to watch the movie first and then I'll go back and learn about the case. And especially I like to see uh, what the real people look like compared to who they cast. And in this one, they did a pretty good job. Yeah. <laughs> Looks wise, they did an amazing job. Yeah, uh, this is one of those movies where they won't hit you over the head with it, and it's not a very famous case, so a lot of people won't know it. But I'm here to tell you, it's very accurate. Like they even filmed the same streets, intersections, mm. the same model cars that were involved. Like they didn't just phone this in; they they really did go like where they pulled them over, the U-turn that's performed, all of that is identical. Oh wow! They actually went to the real places where the murder happened. They are there. Wow. They really went there. Um, so all that stuff you're, when you're watching this is accurate. Which I thought was something, uh, again, you know, um, from the movie, not from the book, although I'm sure it, it happened. But uh, they even take the court to the, to, to out to the crime scene, which I thought was like yeah. unheard of too. So I feel like they do a lot of uh, weird stuff that, that you don't normally hear in, in crime cases. So, yeah. Um, and even, even, um, I don't know. It's kind of. It was such a bizarre. Uh, honestly, so I, I I tried finding this movie. Um, I had better luck. I, I I found more things on like James Woods's uh, take on um, same sex marriage uh, than I could <laughs> find, which actually wasn't what I was expecting. So good for you, James Woods. It's funny because when we covered this, <laughs> I was like, oh god, Todd's going to find out about James Woods' political point of view. But he just flipped the script. He actually was positive. Oh, he was on actually James yeah yeah. <laughs> I was not expecting James Woods is at like a Hollywood premiere, so weird question to ask. Uh, The question was asked to him if uh, if he was gay, who who would he marry? And he's just kind of like, well, that's a really stupid ass question. But and he actually answered it in kind of a way I didn't expect. Um, I will say, watching this movie, I was like, man, this movie is very homoerotic. And I don't know if it's because the the one actor is was openly gay. Yeah. Um, But then I was like, oh, he's going down on him in prison, so it must not have been too off. Jimmy Youngblood also was known to be a, a male prostitute. 
um, when he, in his early yeah. criminal can, days. Can we pause though? And really? I feel bad for I feel bad for googling this, and I'm probably on a list now. But why the fuck was he trying to burn a match or uh, spray some stuff when he slept with the pregnant? Did, did he? Is there like an embryo juice in the air? Like I was really confused. <laughs> I was like, what's he someone, smelling? Could someone explain this to Todd? <laughs> was it was it the movie How to Be a Player? Where the, the famous term Badussi? Yeah. Why smell like Badussi in here? <laughs> What's Badussi? Booty digging pussy. <laughs> so, Todd, that is the smell that can occur after two people of opposite sex have intercourse. And this is why we should be teaching our kids in school this kind of thing. Because <laughs> you leave it for your parents to teach you, and this is what happens. <laughs> so, yeah, he's trying to get the, the smell of sex. Out of the year. I believe we caught Wilson in that once in college. We're like, why does it smell like that in here? And he's like, nope. <laughs> I, thought maybe, um, um, I thought maybe uh, he had pooped or something. I thought maybe it was a new act. I didn't know. If anybody also, has sure. any onion booty jokes, you have to make them now. <laughs> now is the time. Otherwise, we're shutting the box. They can't bring them out anymore. Who didn't think we'd be talking about that scene, but thank you, Todd. That was a good. That was a good <laughs> That's good, all I had I in did. my notes. <laughs> good comic relief. Oof. All right. So, um, I want to talk about that scene where Jimmy Youngblood first joins the the family, as uh, as Powell calls it, and um, he brings him on, and they're going to go rob this liquor store, and Jimmy's the driver, and he's driving there, and he's like, "How you like my car?" You know, Powell always trying to pump up his bravado, mm-hmm. right? How you like my car? You like my car? Nice car? Oh yeah, nice car. I love it. Yeah, that clutch slipping a little bit though. <laughs> Clutch isn't slipping. I made it that way so that you could drive it better under these circumstances. Oh yeah, that makes sense. And like just trying to explain away his junk car. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah, these are grown men. This is how most people behave in middle school, trying to fit in. Yeah, grown men. Exactly. No man, my trapper keeper is purple. That uh, that that scene, that scene alone was. I, I was like, well, maybe I, this is why it's tougher to find is in our current climate because. Man, anybody of color in this movie didn't get painted, uh, you know, I feel like... Uh, in a very good light, yeah. Yeah, I, I was like, well, we banned some of the South, I guess. Because uh, uh, even uh, even our, our main character, I think the they ask him if he's a Negro, and he's like, well, I don't know. I could be, I guess. Uh, anyways, so, uh, I, I was just, building on that scene. They get to the <laughs> liquor store that they're going to rob, and I love that he's like, all right, now listen. I'm gonna go in here and rob this joint, and I do a little skip jump. I was gonna say this sums up Gregory Powell in one vision. Because if I run, everybody looks. But if you see me skipping, you start this car running, Daddy. <laughs> and he comes to the liquor store. And he comes out. He comes out and looks like someone has paralyzed the left side of his body, as if this doesn't attract attention to this grown man. Going across the street like he's on day pass. The question is, why not just start the car when he comes out <laughs> with no skips? I'm, I'm going to throw this out here, too. Why not pull across the street so he doesn't have to skip across the street? <laughs> or have the car running. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. It's like a, when you, what you'd see on, like, True TV, dumbest criminals. Oh, yeah. Watch the surveillance video of this man skipping across the street. <laughs> oh, uh. man. So, all right. Other, other things about the film. I just want to talk about the cast and how 
some of these faces we know very well at this point, but it's an interesting group of four because uh, you've got the guy playing Jimmy, uh, Franklin Seals, first roll, Ted Danson, first roll, mm-hmm. John Savage has already made the Deer Hunter. Oh yeah, the year before, which obviously was a huge critical hit, um, and then James Woods, who's not a, a bona fide star at that point, but um, they they really. I feel like all four of them played their roles well. Yeah. And this this isn't filled with, with big-time stars. And so I think it's interesting, uh, especially having two guys uh, in their first role uh, pull that off. Because I think uh, Jimmy, him, and, and that performer, he has to pull that off for the movie to work. Yeah. Because he has to be able to play off James Woods. Or, or none of it gels. He's got to be a strong second man. And he did a great job. He did. And and I had um, listened to another podcast talking about how Franklin Seals had problems his whole career because he was such a good actor, but no one knew how to cast him. Yeah. Because they were like, are you biracial? Are you Hispanic? And he's like, I'm an actor. Like, right. they, and they just, because of Hollywood at the time and everything. Sure. Look, if Scott great. Hall can be a Cuban. <laughs> <laughs> Chico, I'm sure it helped him that he was openly gay. Right, right, that too, and so like he he was just plagued with these things of, of like that were not his problem that Hollywood could not figure out what to do with him, and he would have had a much better career. Well, then uh, if he then, were born, if he were acting today, yeah. Which then he 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 you know acquired HIV, so that also was a big, especially if you were a gay person in the eighties. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bummer. I think he was only like 38 when he died. Um, there, I will say there is another scene, too, that's kind of brief, but um, is a, uh, uh, a trans person being arrested, and then the, the John, or whatever you would call him. Um, but I'm like, they were probably doing nothing other than um, being themselves and arrested for that time period. So, Evidently, sure. the book makes an awkwardly long story about that happening. Like, very transphobic, very et cetera. And yeah, so, like, being written by an officer in, from the from, time. Yeah, exactly. And they were like, I was listening to a, a podcast about the book, and they were like, yep, really could have done without but what, 20 what, pages on that. Yeah. What, what, <laughs> year, uh, what year was, what, what did this case happen? It was the 60s. 63 was when the Because the this, this is right, which everyone knows about Stonewall, but before Stonewall, like right before Stonewall, like this area had similar things that happened. Because people just got fed up that you're just literally in a bar or at a restaurant and being arrested for being there. Which, uh, at this time period, too, if you were a man that had long hair or long nails or anything, they could arrest you for that. So, Man. I noticed a lot of uh, actors that I recognized from Star Trek throughout this movie. <laughs> Most notably, uh, John Delancey, Q, from When I saw Generation Q pop up on screen, I'm like, well, Venomous Vinny is fully erect at this point. <laughs> yeah. um, I did start thinking, uh, especially toward the end of the film with James, uh, James Woods, that uh, the, his character in Cat's Eye, where he's trying to quit, quit smoking oh, cigarettes, yeah. that this probably started his uh, addiction to cigarettes, because <laughs> he smokes a lot of cigarettes in yeah. this movie. One thing that I think the movie does really, really well, um, that you know, the medium of film can do much better than, than, than the long, drawn-out book, is, is really kind of just painting how different the end of their lives are um, with James Wood's character 
becoming the jailhouse lawyer, and he's thriving in there. Oh yeah. And you have the cop, sick perm. Yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> the cop uh, mired in tragedy and a life ruined, and and you can't blame it specifically on one thing. And part of it's just who each of them are. One is inherently decent, and the other's not. Well, they try to and give you, they try to give you a happy ending with that movie that didn't exist in real life for the cop. You kind of feel like things are on the mend with that last scene you get with him where he's with his wife and they're... I think I'm going to... Yeah. It makes it seem like his life's about to get better and the reality is nope. Yeah, that's true, but I think partially because it wasn't over yet. Yeah. And so there was still hope probably in his situation. I agree with that, but I also think you also can't leave an audience walk out Without giving them that. A movie's different than reading a book. You know what I mean? Right. I don't think you can turn an audience out at the end of that and be like, oh, man. Well, even the book, which, I think which was pretty they, much written on the fly, as the, you know, like some of these other true crime books we talked about, they were being written almost while the case right, was playing right, out. Right. So even that would have been you know, a little more optimistic. A little more optimistic yeah. for him. Yeah. Um, but I, I think it, it it's an interesting kind of uh, contrast of, of the cruelty of, of just the universe. Yeah. The, the, the one who was destined to be where he is is now thriving there, and along his journey in getting to the inevitable, he destroyed, you know, multiple lives. Yeah. How other, good did they portray people. Jimmy Youngblood being just kind of a wiener mm-hmm. who at most was probably just a petty criminal? He's the most unsung part of the movie because that's not an easy role to play. Yeah. He doesn't get to own the easy, meaty scenes. Because while he's such a wiener and, and you would think that would elicit more sympathy than it does, he's still kind of shitty and unlikable. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's weird to marry like they did with James Woods, his character, but you still don't like Jimmy Youngblood. At all. It's almost annoying what a wiener he is. Yeah. Well, and I just wish I had a dollar for every time he went, Jumping Jesus! <laughs> that was actually what it was released in Italy as. <laughs> it, was, it was sold as a, uh, an action film called Jumping Jesus. <laughs> um, boy, I tell you, that scene where, where Ted Danson gets shot in the mouth is unsettling. Yeah. I didn't expect that out of it because, honestly, this, to me, kind of has a TV movie feel to it. Very yes. much so. And uh, what's interesting is this is one of the few true crime er- films of that era that weren't made for TV. Yeah. Right. And so I was surprised that, I mean, it's in your face. Oh, yeah. Close up. It's very... On the wound as it happens. Yeah. It, it has a feeling of realism to it. Because There's it's no not overly gore. That's yeah. exactly right. It's not overly... like. Blood doesn't spurt out of the back of his head right. when it hits and all that. Like it's yeah. quick, unexpected, and upsetting. Yep, like in real life. Yeah, I mean it's it, yeah it's wow. Yep. Yeah. Uh, boy, oh boy! I think and then following that is I wish I'd have paid more attention and maybe you guys did, but as I learned about the true life case, it just. It really bothers me that we'll never know who fired those last four shots. Right. In the film, is it Jimmy doing it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought so. Yep. Yeah. But I, yeah. So, what do you guys think? Who fired the last four shots? I think Jimmy did. You think so? Probably. I think, I think, I think the lap dog 
wanted to show that he was helping. Yeah. Which, which honestly, do you think he was going to survive from the first shot? Well, and if if he didn't fire all four of them, he fired some of them. Sure. And I think you're right, being a lap dog, and honestly, he's probably scared to death that he was going to get shot next as a witness. Yeah, sure. Yeah, he incriminated himself instantly. Yeah. This guy's already dropped. I'm going to add on to it. That's that's what I've always taken yeah. it as. Sure. And he certainly did himself no favors with what he got with his ridiculous parole. Um, one thing I want to mention is that Ian Campbell really did do the bagpipes in real life. Yeah. Uh, that was a, a trademark of his personality. He drove uh, his neighborhood crazy, even as a youngster. Um, he was known for playing those loudly. Um, and Is there any other way to play bagpipes? <laughs> well, sorry. you know what I mean, though, in a neighborhood. And so... With the ending, it's it's hokey, but I love it. With Priscilla Pointer, who uh, Nightmare on Elm Street three fans will yep. recognize uh, from the uh, as a doctor and with the group there. But the scene where the youngster talks to her afterwards, and she he asks, "How long did you you know is your son playing bagpipes?" And she references forever. Yeah, and you know, like I said, it's kind of hokey, but I kind of love it. Yeah, because like it's that like too. that that was kind of the punctuation on this guy's life that was. Ended prematurely, and, and with that, he gets kind of his permanent remembrance on film. Yep. It's a nice scene. And strangely enough, the guy who plays the district attorney in the movie, his name is Escaping Me, he played bagpipes in real life before oh. this movie was filmed, and he was murdered in a park doing it not many years after this movie. <laughs> Boy, people really don't like bagpipes. <laughs> yeah. That's real. That's insane to me. Well... There we are, the onion field. Any closing arguments? I would uh, say the book might be a little daunting for the casual fan, but watch the movie. Yeah, I will say something we have not touched on before we close is the onion field because I thought that added some weirdness to it too. Is they're they're, they're smelling the onions and so it's making them tear up. So before you know, he's just I mean, it was just such an odd scene because they're talking about the onions and 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 like I said, I didn't quite know what the crime was going to be. And I knew that there was a gun under the seat, and I didn't know if it was going to be a cop killing them. Or and it seemed like Hedinger was trying to comfort him, yes. saying, "Oh no, it's just the it's just the onion fields. That's what's making you cry. Like, like all right, it's cool if you're crying because you're scared. But, yeah, but no, it's the onion fields. Yeah, I thought that was a nice touch. And then that scene where they like oddly touch hands. Yeah, and I th- I think that was another comfort thing too. It, like, yeah, hey, for I'm, sure, I'm here with you. Like, yep. you're, and also we're getting ready to die. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, some some good. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Todd. Some good little attention to detail there. Yeah. I watched it on my phone, so <laughs> not the easiest one to get a hold of. Is what we're telling you. Yeah, folks, if you want to watch this, even the podcast I listened to, they were like, "See if your library has it." Yeah, because you think you can get it on Blu-ray, and that's about I, it. I I I looked this up, and I seen that it was like cool. Like I want to say Sony or Columbia or. So I, I, I really didn't think this was going to be. At most, I thought it was going to be running it. Yeah, 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 and yeah. I guess it's not on Amazon or anything. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You can only watch the trailer on Amazon. Wow. Wow. Thanks, guys. <laughs> yeah. I don't know who picked this. <laughs> so, all right. Well, wrapping up another episode of True Crime. The Onion Field. I'm one of your hosts, Grizzly Adner, and I've been joined by Professor Wagstaff, Venomous Vinny, Hot Toddy. Stay scary, friends. <laughs>